0: Hello and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brian Hamilton, your host today, and I'm extremely lucky to be joined by Jenny Price. She's a research fellow at the Sam Fox School of Design and Visual Art at Washington University, St. Louis, and a public artist and writer who has been transforming how we conceive of the environment since the publication of her much-acclaimed first book, Flight Maps, Adventures with Nature in Modern America. She's here today to talk about her funny and fiery follow-up. It's called Stop Saving the Planet, an Environmentalist Manifesto, and it came out from Norton back in April on Earth Day. Dr. Price, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. It's really nice to be here, Brian. All
0: right. Well, I often skip over the stock first question about how somebody came up with the idea for the book because... Many of my guests are scholars promoting their first book, and it's often a grad school story. And I worry that grad school stories are not broadly uh, interesting to folks who, who don't care about grad school. Um, but I actually, I actually would like to start with with the Jenny Price of grad school, if you don't mind. Um, because as a graduate student, you were an important part of a really influential push to consider the historical and cultural underpinnings of modern environmental thought. Um, and a major artifact of this was the edited volume Uncommon Ground, Rethinking the Human Place in Nature. And that's where I first encountered Bill Cronin's essay, The Trouble with Wilderness. That's where we also find Richard White's, Are You an Environmentalist or Do You Work for a Living? And there's Donna Haraway in there and Carolyn Merchant and Robert Harrison and Giovanni Jekiro on on, suburb, on Environmental Justice. And, and then and then there's your chapter on The Nature Company, that, that 20th century suburban mall fixture. And i got to say, all of this just blew my mind. It really just shattered the environmentalism of my youth. Maybe want to go to grad <laughs> school, which I won't hold you liable for. Um, but and then in college, I had had a similar mind-blowing experience, um, being exposed to scholars who had who had uh, treated race as an ideology with a specific history, reflecting specific power relations that had to be reckoned with in order to fight effectively for racial justice today. And and now all of you were doing this with nature and with the environment and with wilderness, and you really defined what it meant to be self-critical environmentalists, um, a tradition in which. Your new book really fits and advances, I think. And I I wonder, so if we could start with you reflecting on what it was like to be part of that push, whether we call it a scholarly project or a political movement, um, what led you as an individual to think critically about environmentalist culture back then? And and how did you find common cause with others doing that kind of work?
1: Um, Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So, I was a biologist actually in college. I majored in biology. I studied white wing trumpeters for my senior thesis, Um, but I always wanted to be a writer. But in my last semester in college, I was looking for a super easy course. I was going to take pass fail. All I wanted to do was finish up my senior thesis and really work on that. And I ended up taking a course by Gary Gerstle, the great Gary Gerstle in 20th century American social history. And it just, like you said, it just shattered my mind. It blew my mind. Um, it just blew me away. Um, I think I'm a born historian in the way I think about things, but that was the first time that I started to, to really encounter it. So I went to graduate school cause that was the only thing that I could do really, because I was graduating and I didn't plan to stay in graduate school, but I thought, okay, I'm going to figure out why this is blowing me away. And I went to study with Bill Cronin because I'm a nature girl. I've been a nature girl since I was born basically. And so it made sense to study environmental history. So I went to study with Mill. And then exactly like you say, Brian, like my world was shattered, right? Because I was a nature girl and literally wilderness was my religion, right? And all of a sudden I'm thinking, oh, wait, you know, nature isn't just the the repository of everything that's true and authentic. And it just shattered my world in a way. And it was that first year in graduate school it was very, very confusing. And I kind of lost my religion. So Flight Maps, which ended up being my dissertation, really was my attempt both to understand my religion that I had lost, you know, and understand the power of that. And to also, I think, sort of make amends, you know, <laughs> for for the, the, the just how problematic this idea of nature as being, you know, out there and not human is. So, and I just happened to, I mean, Bill Cronin obviously was the, he's probably the only person I would have gone to study with who could have kept me in graduate school, which I had no intention of doing when I left. Uh, and I still didn't intend to be an academic, which I was very honest with my committee about, but, um, it was a really exciting time to be part of that, as you say, because this is exactly when Bill was, um, putting together his ideas, you know, and and wrote the trouble with wilderness and the uncommon ground thing happened. And so, um, it was, I mean, I was, um, I, yeah, I don't know if I, if I led that movement. I was more sort of coming along, I think, in, in, in the wake of, you know, other people like Bill and um, Donna Haraway and Carolyn Merchant and um, Susan Davis. And, um, so, and then that ended up being the foundation of most of the work that I have done since in and mostly out of academia is, the, is really trying to understand the impact and the power of this idea of nature. So flight maps, well, I'll, I'll stop there. And yeah, I'd be happy to talk more about it. <laughs>
0: well, yeah. So, so
1: how, how does that, how do we get then,
0: you know, one of the things that's kind of disquieting when reading this book is how much it feels like it could have also been screamed at the environmentalists of the mid-90s. And so I wonder how much you've, you know, what, what, what led to you wanting to write this book now? And also, you know, what, what uh, how much has changed, I guess, in, in the time since flight maps?
1: Yeah. So um, flight maps, it's been, I mean, like you say, it's kind of a trilogy really that I've written. Uh, Flight maps, it turns out I'm one of those people who really in, in, in my entire career, I really only have one significant idea, which I really never wanted to be that person, but it turns out I'm that person. So flight maps was really about this baby boomer, affluent baby boomer idea of nature and how it prevents you from seeing, you know, understanding the connections to nature, we use to live, right? How we use nature to live, use and inhabit nature to live. So I wrote that. And my good friend, Michael Goldberg, um, who uh, was in graduate school at Yale with me um, and who had been really important uh, to me as a person who gave me feedback, said, well, this is, this is nice. This is a nice book, but so what? <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> so what? And of course, what he meant by so what is, okay, so people, this idea is, is um, toxic, but so what? you know why does that matter on the ground in the real world and i feel like i've said this many times before but i feel like my career almost my entire career has been an attempt to answer michael's question so what hmm. so then i did sort of the second part of the trilogy was 13 ways of seeing nature in la which came out in the believer it was a very long essay and that was really about trying to understand the so what using los angeles like how did Los Angeles? How did that idea of nature shape the ways in which Los Angeles has become this incredibly sustainable and an equitable city? How does making nature invisible in your everyday lives, you know, shape cities? Shape everyday lives? Shape the way we build um, and inhabit cities? And then this book was just supposed to be about um, 21st century environmentalism, and I didn't think it was going to be about that idea of nature, but. I was living in LA and I was looking around and I'm like, why do people buy five Priuses? (laughs) Why do people knock down, you know, 13,000 square foot mansions so they can build brand new 25,000 square foot LEED Platinum certified mansions? I'm like, this isn't making sense. And I wanted to figure out why. And lo and behold, you know, my one idea career, I did not intend it to be about ideas of nature. But lo and behold, the more I thought about it, the more I thought about it, I just kept coming back to the exact same analysis that um the logic the 21st century environmental in many ways environmentalism looks different in the 21st century it's not focused on wilderness preservation you know it's mm-hmm. this kind of green consumerism sustainability but ultimately i concluded that it's basically driven by the same really problematic logic yeah. and that almost none of what we're doing or the popular strategies actually are doing anything or really make sense yeah. um you know if you're really scared about climate change
0: it's such so, a lively uh, and fun book, but it has that like very depressing core to it where I'm like, oh, gosh, <laughs> we're still here. Um, before we jump into the arguments you make in there, um, I wonder if you could, I, this is tricky to do from audio only, but if we could help people understand sort of the architecture. And it's. it's an, I think at one point you call it an odd duck of a book um, in, in, the, uh, in the acknowledgements. But I, I wonder if we could kind of, if somebody flipped through it, they'd be able to see pretty quickly what's odd about it or unusual as a book. But if we could kind of describe the architecture of it. And, uh, you know, and what, and what some of the things you're trying to do kind of almost even graphically and layout, out um, with it. What will somebody sure. find if they open it up? Yeah.
1: yeah, absolutely. And I really wanted to make it fun. And I have to give um, some credit to Norton, uh, my publisher, which um, was uh, was on board with that and hired a really fun designer. But I have called it sort of my tiny, angry, funny duck of a thing. And I sent that actually to my writing teacher from college when I sent him a book. And I said, I don't know if you're going to like it all, but it's, you know, it's a tiny funny. And he wrote back and he said, this is now an official literary genre, tiny, angry, (laughs) fun duck of a thing. (laughs) So, so I like that. But um, the architecture of the book is basically there. It's very, very short. It's very tiny. It was a 19,000 word, actually a little bit less manuscript. So it's 144 pages, but it's tiny. It's basically an hour long read. And I really, really wanted to write something that people would be able to read in an hour or less. And the architecture is 11 reasons to stop saving the planet. It was originally, I think 12 or 13 or something. The book just kept getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Um, And that's really my critique. It's like, excuse me, um, why most of the popular solutions, environmentalist solutions to fight climate change, to fight plastics, to fight these ever more existential crises are nonsense. They're just utter nonsense, recycling, runaway green consumerism, offsets, cap and trade, um, Exxon building, lead platinum certified headquarters. You know, they're just absolute nonsense. And they are either not doing anything or making things worse. So that's the 11 reasons to stop saving the planet is really talking about, and I can get into that, but um, is how we need to think differently. And then I have, at the end, I have 39 ways to stop saving the planet. And this is really in response to having presented this. I was presenting the ideas for a long time, even before I started writing the book. And, you know, I'd present to college students and you could just see their faces fall and fall and fall and fall as I was presenting my critique. And, you know, the first question would always be, well, what can we do? What can I do? What can I do? And on the one hand, one of the main arguments in the book is stop fricking obsessing about what you can personally do. You can't stop climate change from your kitchen. On the other hand, I felt that was really important. So I wrote a 39 ways list of, of, of to, you know, ways to stop saving the planet, which are at once a kind of parody of the 50 ways listicle, you know, like turn off your light bulb or change your light bulbs, turn off your lights, all this ridiculous nonsense crap. And then, um, but also uh, uh, I really tried very hard to, to, to think of ways of, of things that people can personally do. Um but they don't look anything like the 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 listicle ways. So yeah, and it's a fun book. There's a lot of like little there aren't pictures, but there's all little graphics and it's um you know, that I think the designer kind of rose to the occasion um laid it out in a really fun way. It's got little footnotes uh which don't have they're more like David Foster Wallace style footnotes. <laughs> um they they don't actually cite anything. They're just asides it has um call-out boxes for important points it's got um it's just it's just they did a nice fun uh design which the book needed and and one other thing i know know i'm going on here but i really wanted this book to appeal to young people and you know like naomi klein i couldn't admire that book more this changes everything and everybody should read that book but i don't think a lot of people are reading all 400 plus pages of it so you know I really wanted a book that would just sort of boil everything down and be short enough that people might actually read it cover to cover.
0: All right. Well, let's jump into some of the some of the boomer nonsense you take apart here and how they're <laughs> thinking. Which I should. I mean, I don't mean to hang it on the boomers because it's it's being passed down for sure. I mean, I, I just finished teaching an environmental justice class to eighteen year olds, and in many ways they're incredibly politically sophisticated and and way beyond where I was in, when, in the nineties. But but and they're talking about intersectional and all this stuff. They're ready for all of that. But they're still <laughs> holding on to some of these ideas for sure. And, and we'll get into. Um, and you have to kind of, you have to come up with your own language to describe some of this nonsense. Um, and there's a lot of neologisms in the book. One of them is whole planitude thinking. Um, and you kind of bring us to the, the Earthrise, blue marble, Apollo image, Apollo mission images of, of the earth, which are, are often credited maybe to excess, um, as catalyzing environmental environmentalism in the seventies. Um. And you're saying you really say that that's a double edged thing, right? There's there's a way that may have inspired people to think, oh, my goodness, this is all we have. And all, all this, all this, all the arguments that are made for the effects of that. But also there are there have been some drawbacks to, to, to conceiving of. And you, you take us through all the Wikipedia pages in which that is the signature leading image of the, the image of Earth from space. Um, so what's wrong? What's wrong with that kind of thinking?
1: Okay. So let me back up a little bit, if I can, because I think um, I do have what I call the save the planet credos, or what I call the thing one and thing two of save the planet logic, which are green virtue and whole planetude, And those are actually enormously important. Basically, the first half of the 11 reasons is about uh, green virtue, and the second half is, is mostly about whole planetude and how these logics um, um, and how these logics um, um, drive, you know, um, basically make nonsense, solutions, strategies, uh, logical. But let me back up a little bit, because to get there, I want to explain sort of the, the bigger ideas in the book, the more basic ideas. And then I would love to talk about those, which is that basically the, the the starting premise of the book is that we have more and more environmentalism, right? Environmentalism is exploding, right? You can see this now in Biden's policies in the last election. But environmental crises just get worse and have been for decades, right? So plastics, climate change, these, you know, air air toxicity, water toxicity in most places, these extinction, these are just getting, these are galloping along. So what's going on? And of course, I don't lay it all at the feet of environmentalists, but I think it's important to look at this. And so I say, well, okay, stop saving the planet. That's what we need to do. We need to think we're thinking all wrong about environment and that. What we need to do is stop thinking about how to save the environment and start talking about how to change environments better, right? Because we change environments to live. And I think American environmentalism historically has really dropped the ball on insisting and explaining to us how our lives are foundationally environmental, right, Brian? So if you look around, if I look around, everything I see, everything I'm wearing, our headphones, everything is made out of environment, right? So if you're flipping about out about climate change, if you want to save anything at all, the two most important questions you can possibly ask aren't how do we save the environment, it's how do we change environments to create our stuff, and how do we change environments to create our wealth, right? And the answer is horribly, horribly, terribly badly, right? We change environments to create our stuff, including our food, with incredibly toxic industrial practices, pretty much across the board. And we change environments to create our wealth with an economy that is designed very specifically to maximize profits and growth first and foremost. And it's basically hardwired to ignore our marginalized social and environmental costs. So what is causing climate change? It's actually very, very simple. We change environments incredibly badly to create our stealth and wealth to, to live. So I really try to boil it down. You know, It's very, very simple. Okay. So We're out of time, right? We're out of time. We're probably, we're out of time 10 years ago for climate change. And if you look at the strategies that we're using, right, like I said, recycling, offsets, you know, all the most popular strategies, buying a Tesla to address these incredibly urgent crises, all of them, every single one of them fails miserably to seriously challenge how we change environments to create stuff and wealth to seriously challenge our, our industrial and economic practices. They're either failing to challenge them, they might be doing a little bit, or in many cases, they're actually making things worse. And I think that, so the premise of the book is we have to stop pretending that these solutions are working, you know, because they're not working. And we have to start thinking really, really differently about what is environment, what is an economy for. Um, so that's, the book is really about thinking differently, right? Okay, so do you want me to launch right into Green Virtue and Whole Planetitude or maybe you could? <laughs> <laughs> Let me start <laughs> with Whole, Whole Planetude. Kind of... <laughs> yeah. Okay, so sure. um, Green Virtue and Whole Planet, what I say is that um, say thinking about fighting climate change as saving the environment, and we use environment and planet interchangeably, if you think about it. We always say people and the planet, basically just yeah. means environment. Um, is basically a logic that assures you um that that everything you're doing is helpful, right? And it's not nonsense, right? So because you have very, very well-intentioned people who are doing all this stuff, right? And they're 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 terrified for their kids and they care about what's going on and they want to do something, right? But so what I say is is if you think about there are three things I don't like about Save the Planet as the environmentalist mantra. Save the and planet. Okay? So Um, save is like, oh, I'm this incredibly virtuous person because I'm saving the environment out there, right? As this place apart from humans that humans are desecrating, right? So I'm awesome when I save the planet is basically what that boils down to. And then the planet or the environment makes it so that everybody thinks of, you know, you think of environment as one thing, right? So anything you do contributes to that goal to save the planet, right? Because it's one thing, right? So anything I do, to save the planet is good. So if you add up those two things, green virtue and whole planetitude, I'm awesome when I save the planet. I can do anything to save the planet. What do you get? You're awesome when you do anything to save the planet. And I think if you want a motto for 21st century American environmentalism, it's you're awesome when you do anything to save the planet. And I think that is what, that's the logic, right? That makes people feel like they're doing something when they buy a Tesla, right? Um, is you're awesome when you do anything to save the planet. Now, that's there's a kind of um, less cynical and more cynical uses of this logic, right? The less cynical is that people it is um, a lot of it is well intentioned and people don't see the nonsense in the logic, right? Um, the more cynical part is that is that it works really really well for affluent Americans who benefit the most from how we change environments badly to create our stuff and wealth, right? Who contribute the most to how we do that and who suffer by far the least from how we do that because we're not stashing the inevitable toxics and waste in their neighborhoods, right? So it actually is a logic that assures affluent Americans. And I'm hardly the only person saying this, obviously. Uh, Naomi Klein says there's a ton of environmental historians who are talking about this and people in environmental humanities, but that that it's, it works really, really well for affluent Americans. And I think one thing that is different in my book is that I don't just call it cynical and hypocritical, right? It is hypocritical, but not always intentionally hypocritical. And I'm trying to understand why well-meaning people are engaging in nonsense and why they believe in it so strongly, right? That's really, um, I think, what the book has to contribute, that maybe not everyone is uh, everyone else is is emphasizing so so that's green virtue and whole planet too and then of course less well-intentioned people you know if you're the ceo of exxon or if you're you know you know all kinds of people um can come along and take advantage of the faith in these nonsense solutions and, and that's what supports you know anything you do is awesome supports greenwashing right, right? you can right. do anything anywhere any little bit but I'll just say one final thing about this: is there's this there's this just credo in in among environmentalists that just do anything it all adds up. It doesn't all add up. It hasn't all add. You know, it's like saying one plus one equals a hundred, or in our case, one plus one minus fifteen equals a hundred. It doesn't all add up. Small steps don't necessarily add up to the big goal. So, um, so that's that's right there is the heart of the book. I think I think that's all we have to talk about. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm going to drag you on a little longer for the ratings, but um, if we uh, yeah, 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 sure. if we come back to the Tesla and the buying a Tesla, and I think there's a certain you know kind of knee jerk like, well, it's just you know it's again the affluence and, and it's all oh, people think it's fun and all that, but there's you have I think you very succinctly make another criticism of why we're running in place when we do things like that with that kind of green consumerism, and it's that it, and you and you uh, and you say that kind of the economy can be frustratingly hardwired to pollute, um, and it's it's because you, you follow the money, right? So when you buy the $80,000 Tesla or the $31,000 Prius, as you say, um, you're saying, let's not only think about what happens to the car, um, and maybe it has a marginal impact at one point, but it also ends up, you know, the battery ends up in a landfill and all that. You know, let's think about the car. Let's also think about what happens to the money. And if we follow the money to, to where it goes, um, that the, the consumer lets go of, and it ends up, you know, with Toyota or, or uh, Tesla. And, and why is that important to think about?
1: Yeah, I mean, a Tesla is basically, you know, a Ford Explorer when you compare it to real solutions. You know, it's, it's incredibly toxic to make. It's incredibly toxic to drive and repair. And but you're right. But what I say, which I think is enormously important, is the one thing people never talk about when they're talking about how clean a Tesla is, is to follow the money. So to follow the profits that people make from uh, making and selling Teslas, to follow, you know, um the, the person who works in the factory, their 401k, you know, um, obviously the investments of of the executives and the boards of directors, you know, and um, that money is doing tremendous harm out there. It's basically fueling climate change while you're trying to drive and repair and, you know, uh, resell and whatever, a car that supposedly is supposed to solve climate change. And I think this is, um, there are a few basic problems. There are patterns with Are kind of nonsense solutions. And one is that they tend to fuel the problems that we're trying to solve. You know, basically, you will never, ever, 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 ever make any significant headway on climate change unless you challenge what our economy is for. And unless you insist that our economy needs to maximize health and well-being of people, environments first and foremost, and not profits and growth. It's just not possible. So this whole green growth is not only ridiculous, but it's dangerous, you know, it's pernicious. So we have all these solutions that fuel that economy to try to solve the problem, that, problems that economy creates. I think none, no solution more pernicious than cap and trade which is just absurd. It's just obscene. I think I get, it's probably the angriest part of the book is my cap and trade (laughs) chapter. I do want to get there. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And I I spent a lot of time trying to understand cap and trade, which I don't fully because it's so, it has to be enormously complicated because it's trying to get the economy to do something that's inherently hardwired not to do. So basically you're dumping billions and billions of dollars into carbon permits into an economy. And what what happens to those billions of dollars? They're used to fuel climate change, to do things that fuel climate change. So runaway green consumerism is another obvious uh, solution that just fuels the problem to solve the problem. And then, of course, the other um, the other main problem with our solutions is that they they try to solve problems after the fact. Why are we trying to solve problems at the consumer end? You know, I say in the book, I say it's like sending a a carrier pigeon to the firehouse instead of calling 911, you know, and this has been like, just as a very obvious example, the recycling scam that has been perpetrated on us by plastics and oil and packaging companies led probably most perniciously by Coke actually for decades, um, you know, that we're supposed to just create all the pollution we want. And then we have this, you know, illusion that somehow we're going to take care of it on the consumer end. What we need is clean production, not virtuous consumerism. So that's the other big problem, I would say. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Let's, let's loop back to the the greenwashing. You come after greenwashing hard in this book. And I think it's something that will really that'll really appeal to a younger reader. I know my students were all fired up about um, like that that Dawn commercial where they say that, you know, you can you can use Dawn dishwashing to clean more than, than dishes. It also cleans baby ducklings in an oil spill or whatever. And they just you know, I think that they really, you know, teenagers respond to hypocrisy and you know corporate malfeasance and lies and they get really angry. Um, but when you were uh, back in, in March, you did an interview for Public Thinker with uh, the great eco-critic um, Nicole Seymour, and she made this great point when she's talking about that it can be, it's, sometimes it's hard to distinguish between greenwashing and just corporations acting environmentally according to the rules laid out by the environmental movement. Um, and that that's really, you know that, that we, we shouldn't let corporations off the hook for that, but actually we also need to put environmental movement on the hook for that. The fact that it's hard to distinguish is a problem of our environmental politics. Um, and so I wonder why, you know, why do environmental politics permit greenwashing and kind of what, what shape could they take to actually make it, you know, not, not, you know, not possible.
1: Sure. So first I just want to do a shout out to Nicole Seymour, who I think is one of the most really exciting and creative people out there who's challenging this idea of nature, uh, first with her book, Bad Environmentalism. And I know she's got a lot of things in the pipeline. Um, so, um, you know, one, one thing, you know, obviously I, I say, in, you know, in the, I don't know, the first five lines of the book, something like it's time, it's long past time to, um, to deal with the, you know, serious and, and, and enduring f- failures of American environmentalism. And you might say, well, hey, it's not environmentalism's fault, right? What about the far right Republicans? What about the Kochs? What about um, Coca-Cola? What about um, Fox News? And I say, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, of course. Goes without saying. But we make it so easy we make it so easy for them, right? Um, And one of the ways we do that is having this save the planet approach to environmentalism that makes greenwashing not only so easy, but believable. So I say, you know, three actually, so of the 11 reasons to stop saving the planet, three are everyone hates environmentalists, because I think that's enormously important to figure out why everyone hates environmentalists um, for all kinds of reasons. And two of them are greenwashing works, And so one of those is how does green virtue make greenwashing work? I think that's pretty obvious. I don't even have to explain that. And the other is how does whole planetude make greenwashing work? But again, if you add them together, you have this approach that anything you do anywhere, any little bit is awesome. So, you know, Chase comes out with their plan to build a lead platinum, you know, headquarters or to be... um, to, to, to try, switch to clean energy in their own facilities by 2020 and all these environmental NGOs say, Oh, isn't this great? They're doing something. They're doing something. We'll get them there. They're doing something. Well, we're not going to get them there. They're probably making things worse because of all the legitimacy that, the, the legitimacy that they gain by doing those things. You know, you only have to look at Walmart's um, sustainability initiative, which I, I talk about in the book, when did they launch that? That was right when Walmart's reputation was cratering, right? In, uh, when was it? Now we don't even remember. I think it was uh, late 2000s or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they said, oh, what should we do? What should we do? Should we pay our workers more? No. Should we, you know, stop um, bribing, <laughs> you know, um, um, internationals? No. Um, you know, should Union we Boston? stop our monopolistic? No. Should we pay more taxes? No. what did they do? They launched a sustainability initiative, which is, First of all, has a patina of virtue and um, allows them to basically do nothing, you know, while continuing to, to fuel this economy that's actually part of the problem. And I say, I say in the book, it's basically as if, you know, Walmart's electric trucks are basically about as effective as putting a banner that says, we're so virtuous, you know, across the, um, the entrance to their headquarters, um. It's probably less effective actually than doing that <laughs> so yeah greenwashing is a serious problem so you know why do we make it so easy why does greenwashing work even when we know that they're bullshitting us we know it and yet i being a nature girl right and having this logic save the planet logic just like hammered into my head i go to whole foods actually i don't do that much anymore thank god but i go to you know and and I see something, you know, some serial that says all natural and I start to swoon. I'm like, and I'm the, I'm the person who wrote the book about it. And I'm like, ooh, <laughs> all natural, great. I'll get that, you know? I mean, it works, it works because this logic is so powerfully, okay, I'm an historian, I haven't even really talked about history yet, but it's so powerfully rooted in, um, historically in this American idea of a uh, way of thinking about nature, which is so evasive and so dangerous.
0: To think about history, um- you you write that today we have uh, quote an all-out class and culture war that's coming to a head, but that's been raging around environment, American environmentalism from the very beginning. Can you help us understand that? And there's a way that this book is really just is is an environmental justice book, even though you don't use the word all that often. But but what we're, what uh, in what way are we living in the in kind of the aftermath of that of those those kind of class? So it's origins?
1: absolute. I'm sorry. Is, yeah, it's absolutely important to understand this. And I say in the beginning, there's two questions. That environmentalists, the most important questions we should ask that I think a lot of environmentalists aren't asking, and one is why aren't we making any progress? Instead, we have this before and after celebration narratives, you know, which are not completely uh, wrong, but they're mostly wrong, uh, partly for environmental justice reasons. And the other is why do so many Americans hate environmentalists, right? And I spend a great deal of the book trying to talk about this. And I say this is one of the few things that uh, communities of color and the Trump white Working class and impoverished base agree on is that they all hate environmentalists, um, and environmentalists obviously have this long reputation for being elitist, and they don't understand that they're like, but we're saving the planet, we're saving the environment, we're not elitist. So, so I spent a lot of time trying to think about that, and I think you know the easy answer is that environment is that we've had a this is really um, broad brush, and not completely fair, but the book is broad brush, it's a polemic, and that we have had a trickle-down environmentalism that has basically cleaned up the problems where and when affluent people encounter them. Now, I think right now we're sort of at a tipping point where it's not going to be possible to do that anymore. And I think that's one of the reasons we're actually seeing people get serious about climate change. But, so I think the simple answer, why do people hate environmentalists? Well, first of all, environmental strategies have not been helping them very much. They don't see, they don't see, you know, the benefits. And second of all, um, it's all done with this incredible sense of virtue, righteous virtue, about how great people are because they're saving the planet, right? All while, all while we're stashing our toxics increasingly by the billions of tons in low-income neighborhoods, which is predominantly, on average, will be communities of color, but it's also millions and millions and millions of white Americans also live in these communities. So, um, so no wonder. You know, no wonder there's a class war. Um, no wonder people hate environmentalists. Um, and I think it's, that's something that's enormously important uh, to look at. I think that you, you, you cannot um, tackle climate change or plastics or extinction or any of these issues effectively unless you also tackle um, the inequities, you know, environmental inequities. I'm hardly the only person saying that. You know, we've heard that a million times.
0: So. I, one thing and I, I took a lot of solace in seeing environmentalism change um, from my childhood, in, 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 especially after reading, you know, your work and, and Bill's work and others, and, and because the, the kind of the two most prominent issues I saw mainstream environmentalism taking on was, was climate and was food politics, and I thought these were ones that were really hard to fit into that wilderness ideology idea of of out there and in here. But there's also a way that the, the, your book made me think about the way that they were also very easy for everyone to think about only in their own spaces. And then it was like, well, this climate's going to affect us here and food and what's going on with our food or how I buy food here. And that it wasn't, and there's a way that we then leaving, you, you refer to environmentalism as having gotten place blind. And I'm thinking back to the first Earth Day and, and these lists of like, here are the most polluted rivers in the country. We need to do something about these rivers and, what, and the corporations that are polluting them in this way that seemed quaint to me before. But now I'm thinking like, actually, that's maybe more effective because you're talking about how if we're going to evaluate environmentalism's progress, we need to look at the at the at the most polluted places and have they changed. And we have a, a part of the country we call Cancer Alley and we've called it Cancer Alley for a long time and we still do. Um and so like, you know, and I wonder to, to what extent you what's what's led to this place blindness, you think? And maybe that's right. also a place to talk um, about carbon trading and all that.
1: Yeah, well I think it's it's also this um this 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 logic of you can do anything anywhere, any little bit. And it yeah. basically allows you to avoid where the messes are actually happening and the the degree to which they're actually happening and and the degree to which solutions actually are tackling these big messes. So the last, it is, this book is basically at its core an environmental justice book. It's also basically an anti-capitalist rant that never uses the word capitalism, (laughs) um, which is also very intentional, but (laughs) most people do. Usually the word comes up before now, Brian. So thank you. (laughs) Maybe <laughs> half an
0: hour. Now we're in. There.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, so the last of the eleven reasons is called something like um, we can't tackle. Um, you know these. I, I forget what it's called. What's it called? The, we can't uh, tackle. Yeah. Here, I'll, I'll actually can't look at how up.
0: we are all in this together, unless you tackle how we are not all in this together.
1: Right. So I say, you know, what's one of the major things that you can do differently? Go after the worst messes right? Forget about your freaking house in Beverly Hills. I mean, that's fine. I want your kids to not be breathing toxics. That's great. But there's this illusion that that is somehow solving climate changes as somehow solving our toxics problem. It's not doing a fricking thing to solve those problems, right? But what would do a fricking thing to solve those problems is if we actually look at the worst messes and try to clean those up because those would require real solutions. So if you're in LA, if you're in Beverly Hills, well, go down to Southeast LA and join up with the people down there who are trying to, you know, cancer alley, obviously this 80 mile corridor between Baton Rouge and, and new Orleans, it has over 150 petrochemical plants and counting because the oil companies as plan B are massively expanding plastics production, you know, all while they're, they're creating NGOs like Alliance to end plastic waste. Right. And spending millions if you know, on, uh, marketing to promote recycling. So, um, you know, focus on the worst messes because ultimately, well, first of all, for basic decency, I mean, these people are, a lot of people, I mean, every city has these communities, every rural, every county has these communities that are just so poisonous where cancer levels are really high, where everyone has asthma. They're everywhere now. We have like 1,340 Superfund sites, but those are only the worst ones, right? So, um, and what, I say something like 30 or 40 of those, no, um, most of those have been on the list for 30 to 40 years. Um, So, because we're not focusing on the worst messes, because that would actually require seriously rethinking how, what our economy is supposed to do. So yeah, focus on Cancer Alley, focus on South Valley and Albuquerque and St. Louis, focus on North St. Louis. We have a, we have a, you know, radioactive um, just unbelievable huge mess up uh, all across the north part of St. Louis um, because of massive mismanagement of nuclear waste. Um, so yeah, you can't, you can't, you cannot solve these problems unless you also focus on justice. And this whole separation that environmentalists have done for decades of economy and environment or saying, well, we we deal with the an environment and these other NGOs focus on social justice, Right. Right. Or we have to balance the needs of the economy and the environment. That <laughs> drives me crazy. That is so infuriating. That is so pernicious. You know, rather than understanding how our economy is foundationally environmental, an economy is how we change environments to provide our needs and wants, and how we distribute the benefits and the costs.
0: And it's so, so funny because that's um, something that even like even, there, even even Earth Day founder Senator Gaylord Nelson was saying yeah. that in 19, like no, it was not a radical position <laughs> in the '70s, and now it's right. Like, oh. We've lost sight of that now. It's madness. Ugh, don't um, get me
1: started on the word radical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or do. I'm,
0: I'm tiptoeing. I'm tiptoeing around okay. here. Um, And then uh, um, before we get to the, the, the second act of the book with your individual actions, um, I, mm. obviously your, your insistence here is there needs to be structural changes, um, mm. however radical we make that. Um, and I wondered about you know if you have an early assessment of first six months of the Biden administration and anything <laughs> you see that's... I don't want to use the word hope, but um, anything, anything, any way you're seeing it, how does it emblematic of, of the kind of work that that uh, is happening today from environmentalists.
1: Yeah, and I'm just going to say everything that uh, the Sunrise Movement is saying, that, yeah. you know, Naomi Klein, Bill McKibben, that um, that Indigenous Environmental Networks are saying, that Climate Justice Alliance is saying, which is that, yeah, it's very encouraging. He's obviously paying serious attention to climate. He's actually treating uh, climate as an economic um, issue. Um, on the other hand, he's not willing to challenge a growth economy and he's not willing to challenge and that our economy is designed to maximize profits and that our economy is designed to make everything be not about what it's about. So, healthcare isn't about healthcare and strawberries aren't about strawberries and chairs aren't about chairs, right? And cleaning up an oil spill isn't about cleaning up an oil spill. He's not willing to challenge that. He hasn't even come close to challenging that and I think, um, you know, it's all about so one thing that is a little bit different in my book, I don't think any of these other folks would disagree with it, but they haven't quite articulated it that way. Is I say, you know, we tend to talk about the Green New Deal as an opportunity, as an economic opportunity, as sort of these, we have these two crises, coincidentally, <laughs> right? We have this <laughs> massive inequ- inequitably, uh, inequitable economy, which has been growing more inequitable since the 1980s. And we have this terrifyingly existential crisis of climate change. It's, in fact, not the only terrifyingly existential environmental crisis. And isn't it cool that we can use mm-hmm. this crisis to clean up this crisis, you know, that, that we can, that climate change will provide a lot of jobs. Well, I think that's silly. I think what we need to talk about is how any democratic, system, the foundation of, uh, about how our, our economy is foundationally environmental and that and that a a democratic economy requires that we change environments to create our stuff and wealth sustainably and equitably. So, you know, you hear actually the term intersectional environmentalism, which I like quite a lot, actually. I think it's actually better than environmental justice, um, which I think has tended to focus more on justice than environment. Whereas I sort of feel like we need to talk about how they're entwined um, and how our goals are basically ultimately the same, but, um, but, yeah, I think we need to stop talking about environment and economy as, as two separate things and really and really emphasize how our, our economy is foundationally environmental. Um, that's a sort of a major, major um, building block in thinking differently.
0: You conclude the book with 39 ways to stop <laughs> saving the planet, things that you can do. And it reminded me of uh, uh, the title of uh, Eaton Hirsch's a political scientist book, that politics is for power and how to move beyond political hobbyism, take action to make real change. And I, and I wondered about what are some of the the guiding principles that you used when assembling this list of actions?
1: So I didn't want them to focus on individual um, silly, trivial things, right? So change your light bulbs, drive a Tesla, whatever. So I take all those things and I put them in one way. Yeah, I forget I which way list. it is, right? <laughs> I forget which way it is. And it's almost like making fun of those, right? Um, and I, even when the designer had those spaced out over two pages, I said, no, 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 I want those to be on one page. You know, it's just like this ridiculous list,
0: right? 39 no brainer things. And they're all just there with uh, commas. Yep.
1: (laughs) Right. There are things that you should do, but you know, don't pat yourself on the back when you do them. Um, they're not going to accomplish much. So I thought, okay, well, what can we do? So I focus on, there's a few different, uh, I have, and I actually list them in the beginning, if I can find this really quick. Mm -hmm. Um, I have um, kinds of ways: social change as opposed to individual change. How the world makes money go round. Word up, <laughs> which is my okay boomer, you know, <laughs> attempt to um, to be cool. Um, stuff matters, um, of course, of course not. Special powers, bamboozle free zone. So let me break some of those down. So one of the things I say is uh, social change. So act together with other people. So even when you're doing things like addressing, um, you know, how you consume, do it with other people you know, have, um, garden shares and, um, repair, you know, um, um, tool libraries and, you know, things like that. Um, but first of all, actually most important, a couple things I do is like focus on the worst messes. Right. So I have a few things that are like, how do you focus on the worst messes? How do you find the people in Cancer Alley who are actually trying to fight those and work with them? Um, another critical thing to the degree that I sort of cave into things you can you know, do in your everyday life are, pay attention to how you create wealth. Pay pay attention to how you move money around in this world. Now that's not always possible. And I want to acknowledge that, you know, a lot of young people don't have a lot of choices about how, uh, they move, move, you know, and I say, you know, we have an economy in which young people are basically have no choice, but to work in jobs that are ruinous to people and environments. So I want to acknowledge that, but at the same time, um, I think what I say is pay a lot more attention to how you create wealth, how you change environments to create wealth than to how you spend it or to how you give it away. Because right now what we do is we have an economy in which people, you know, our jobs are all focused on basically creating wealth in ways that are enormously devastating to people and environments. And then we take that wealth and we spend it (laughs) to try to fix those problems. And we give it away to organizations to try to fix those problems. And then those organizations invest it in the exact same companies that are causing the problems in the first place where people are forced to take those jobs. So none of it makes a bit of sense. And here I would uh, nod to Anand uh, Gerd Haradas uh, in his great new book, um, Winners Take All, really um, breaking down the nonsense of philanthropy. And I know my entire career is based is because of philanthropy. So I'm probably, um, of course, we need it now. But in the long run, in the long term, a lot of big philanthropy doesn't really make sense. So wealth. And then I have some um, stuff about stuff matters about, you know, how you consume, um, instead of um, buying green things like buy less, you know, share, barter, um, things like that. But then a lot of, um, a lot, you know, this book is really about thinking differently. And a lot, of these ways are about how to think differently. So it's like redefine environment, redefine economy, redefine GDP, redefine efficiency. Some of these are all in the, you know, coupled up in in one way. Um, I have one knowledge is power, you know, go find out. I mean, that's actually when college students ask me, I'm like, pay attention to your education. What courses are you taking? That's actually enormous. That's much more important than turning off your lights, right? So and then I have a steams one, which is about (laughs) the importance of basically humanities. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Steams, steams. It's a Yiddish word. Um, uh, What is it? Science, humanities, engineering, Engineering. arts, uh, math, and social science. Mm -hmm. So uh, the the superpowers of all different ways of knowing. But then I have things like think bigger, right? Like, um, like um, think about costs differently. Right. So when you buy something on Amazon, you say, "Oh, but that vacuum is cheaper on Amazon." Well, it's not really. All of us actually pay more for that vacuum in all kinds of ways, with taxes and, and environmental damage, and you know um, um, their labor practices, and, and you know all, all of the consequences for us because of their horrible labor and environmental practices. But you know who pays the most for that vacuum is the people who have the least money, right? Because they're the ones who basically are saddled with um, the real social environmental consequences of that cheap vacuum that you can get the next day. So I'm like, think bigger. Americans have a habit of blaming individuals for individuals' problems that are actually systemic and also for praising individuals like frickin' Bill Gates. I'm not going to even get into that, but that just is also, I find, kind of infuriating um, that he would be a hero in our society for for solving problems, and I'm like, you know, think bigger, think bigger, think systemically, think about the systemic um, problems of um, poverty and um, environmental devastation, and think about um, the need for systemic solutions. So, so that's it. They're all done in a kind of fun way. I include some scribble zones where you can um, scribble your thoughts down because um, I want uh, those to really be interactive. Um, but yeah, but I'm really, I'm really grateful to the young people who sort of insisted uh, that I do that. Um, cause, um, everybody says, you know, if I, if you have, it's sort of like Michael's, Michael Goldberg's question, like, so what, like, if you have a book that's about thinking differently, then people say, oh, but what should I do? Yeah, and I'm right. like, well, think differently. That's, you know, <laughs> it's, it's not like we actually know what to do. You know, mm-hmm. I'll go on a little mini rant here, Brian, like we already know what to do. We have decades of literature on a degrowth economy on what an equitable economy would look like. We know that we have to pour funding into green chemistry you know, into trying to detoxify our everyday lives. We know what to do. It's not mysterious. So to me, an even more important question is why aren't we doing it? And why are people with good intentions refusing decade after decade to do what we need to do? So I think saying to think differently is not, it's not, you know, it's not a trivial um, answer to what should we do.
0: I hope you're kept very busy in, in the months ahead uh, sharing this book with readers. Um, are there other things that you're up to that you'd like to uh, share with us and promote?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, well, you know, the book has taken up, uh, obviously, I mean, it took me uh, many years to write a, um, you know, 18,000 word manuscript. Um, but yeah, well, we just posted. I would actually love for people to know. Um, I worked with uh, the filmmaker Ter Merkofer and actually my nephew, Michal Price, who uh, at some point will be a great uh, environmentalist leader, I think, who's um, getting into environmental policy to do a a a series of Stop Saving the Planet videos. And we just posted the first one on plastics recycling. So if you Google on YouTube, uh, if you go to YouTube and punch in Stop Saving the Planet Plastics Recycling, it'll come up. And it's just a two-minute fun, irreverent um, video about the, you know, it's like Mr. Save the Planet versus Ms. Just Stop It Already (laughs) uh, video. And we're hoping to... I produce a couple more of those. So there's that. Um, I have um, just like I lived in L.A. for 15 years. Most of my work was on L.A. It was a super exciting place to be working on environment because the problems are so massive and so many interesting creative people are working them. And the public agencies are more progressive than in a lot of places. Um St. Louis, which is my hometown in which I came back to intending to stay a year, and I'm now staying for the foreseeable future, is a really exciting place to work on environmental justice for really depressing reasons. Yeah. Um, just read Walter Johnson's new book, The Broken Heart of America, if you want to know uh, <laughs> why. Um, so I am developing a suite of projects that I'm calling um, St. Louis Division. Um, I'm working with um, a couple of uh, collaborators on a project called Superfun. <laughs> which is a I love these alt institution projects, which I got started with f- through the uh accidentally becoming part of the Los Angeles Urban Rangers. Yeah, the Rangers. Um, yeah. where you kind of um yeah, create a, a shadow institution. Um I think they they're quite powerful. So we're creating the Superfund agency. Um yeah, we have um some other ideas. Um there's still an LA River project I like to do. I have a um a Yiddish rant called Steam which I've performed a few times, but which I need to develop, um, which is a a Yiddishy rant about the the indispensable importance of the humanities for tackling our 21st century problems. Um, I would love to polish that up and put it on YouTube or something like that. I have a project called The Homestead Project, which is part of my St. Louis division project, which again is sort of trying to make men's grapple with my own complete ignorance about what was going on in St. Louis um, displacement of African-American communities, um, uh, nuclear waste management. Yeah. 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 My hometown, growing up in a very affluent suburb in St. Louis with actually very politically active, uh, parents, but still I just didn't, um, understand sort of the extreme environmental and, uh, social inequities in the city. So it's, 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 again, it's an alt institution project where I'm a fake docent for a fake, um, his local history society talking about the wonderful childhood of, I don't know, I think I call her Jessica Prince or something. The great environmental writer grew up down the street from Kevin Klein, And then I have a, a simultaneous translation that's telling the story about all the things that are going on at the same time Jessica Prince is growing up, you know, birding and enjoying her hiking and stuff. Um, that's about displacement of African-American communities, which is still going on and um, um, toxic waste and nuclear waste. So, yeah. So I hope to get some of those projects out into the public.
0: Wonderful. We'll be, we'll, be, we'll be excited we'll see. to see any, any of it we can. Um, the book, again, is Stop Saving the Planet, an Environmentalist Manifesto. My guest is Dr. Jenny Price. It's out now from Norton. Go check it out. Jenny, thanks so much for your time and for this book.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, Brian. This is a wonderful conversation. Thank you for it.